The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Maybe you heard the news about Donald Trump's nightmarish choices for his cabinet, some of the worst human beings in America. Joan Walsh has some ideas about where we should focus our efforts to block them. Also, The Nation is publishing a special issue this week, Assessing the Obama Era. 20 pieces, 80 pages, written by some really smart people. Today we'll speak with one of them, Andrew Basevich, on Obama's foreign policies and wars. And we'll do more on the Obama era in future podcasts. But first, Chris Hayes. Chris is editor-at-large of The Nation, and of course, host of All In with Chris Hayes on MSNBC every weeknight. His first book, Twilight of the Elites, America After Meritocracy, is about the crisis of authority in American life. It was published in 2012, four years before Trump, and amazingly prescient. Chris grew up in the Bronx and graduated from Brown University in 2001 with a BA in philosophy. He wrote the introduction to the nation's special issue on the Obama era. It's out now at thenation.com. Chris Hayes, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Well, Obama is the only Democrat since FDR to win an absolute majority of the, of the electorate, that is more than 50%, twice. He passed the biggest health care bill since Medicare. He cut the unemployment rate. He raised wages. Our question today is a big one. How come Obama's presidency and all that it accomplished ended with the election of Donald Trump? That is the question of the hour, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's crazy because we've, we've entered into this, like, it, 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 at some level, like, it, it keeps getting more surreal after the election because, you know, one level, you know, I think election night happened and, be, and because it was so shocking, I think I thought the magnitude of victory was larger than it was, partly because I, I, it was, you know, so surprising that she had lost you know, Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, and she'd also lost North Carolina and Florida, which she thought would be contested. You know, she lost Ohio by a huge margin in Iowa. But then, you know, in the in the weeks after the election, it's like her national lead grows, you know, nearing three three million, while President Obama is like edging up to sixty percent approval rating, <laughs> and and the and the actual votes that decided the election is about eighty thousand votes across three states. So you just sort of it it, it can feel it can feel at, it feels overdetermined, right? It feels that like there are 20 different causes that you could list for what happened. And some of those causes are fluky, like James Comey deciding to do something completely irresponsible and reckless and borderline a, an act of vandalism against democracy by issuing that letter. And some of them are not random. Some of them are deep structural issues about the Democratic coalition that, you know, the party, the Democratic Party has lost tremendous amounts of political power in the era of Obama. And so you, you try to tease those apart as much as possible. Um, 
I think that there's basically, to me, there's sort of two main stories to tell. I mean, one is the story about racial backlash, and it's a story that is familiar in American history. I've just been sort of reading about the election in 1876, uh, which which was the election, the last election 140 years ago with this biggest spread between the popular vote margin and the Electoral College. Uh, it ended up with uh, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, winning, although at the cost of essentially withdrawing troops from the South and ending Reconstruction. And that election was, uh, that election, the election preceded 1874, were just, were pure racial backlash. The, the interesting thing about those elections, when you look at them in the context of today's debate about, you know, identity politics versus economic anxiety, was that even pure racial backlash wasn't pure because there was huge economic problems with the stewardship of the country, and there was a depression, and people were ticked off about that. And it turns out that those two things, economic frustration and uh, bigotry, play into each other in all kinds of ways. And so I think, you know, ultimately there's two stories about the sort of how Obama led to Donald Trump. One, one is racial backlash. And one is a deeper structural story about the way the American economy has been structured for a long time that was accelerated by the financial crisis and was not fundamentally restructured by the Obama administration, uh, both partly because of things they did and many things that Congress and Republicans did, uh, that meant people had sort of basically given up on the kind of social compact that they thought was the thing that bound them to a certain kind of vision of American norms. The college degree seems to be the dividing line for white people between those who voted for Trump and those uh, who voted for Clinton. Why do you think that turned out to be so critical? So, so we should just be clear that the college degree, um, white people with a college degree still did vote for Trump, although by a, a fairly narrow margin, a much narrow margin, about three points than they did for, say, Mitt Romney, who won that group by 11 points. The white working class... The, which is white non-college in pollster terms, uh, went basically two-thirds to one-third, which is just a staggering margin. And I think, I think it's not an accident. I think that, that basically the way that the rules of the American economy have become structured is that you get to participate in the kind of possibility of the American dream if you get a college education or you have a shot at it. And if you don't, you, you just don't. You know, we, we, we talk about, you know... I think people that are from cultural settings in which there's an expectation everyone goes to a four-year college have this expectation that's part of the natural trajectory of life, but obviously there are tens of millions of Americans who don't have a four-year college education. And if you don't have a college degree, you know, the, the whole social contract is very unclear. Like, what exactly is the plan here from a sort of social sense of what we as a society think you should do, what you can do, and what you can do with some kind of faith that you could achieve a middle-class life. And, you know, obviously this is something that's been developing over a long period of time, but, you know, it, it, it has hit us something of a crisis point, I think. Um, and, and particularly because the gains have, even when people have jobs, you know, one of the things about the economic statistics is, the unemployment rate can mask a lot of things that are happening distributionally. And even as unemployment has accelerated, it took a very long time for wages to start coming up. And then even after they started coming up, we saw them sort of flatline again. So if you don't have a college degree, there's this real sense that there's a ceiling above you that you cannot break through. And I think that changes people's conceptions about how valid the entire sort of American project is. Monday night, uh, you went to Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's a Rust Belt town. 
uh, used to have a Chrysler plant that's closed now. Uh, Kenosha voted for Obama twice and then voted for Bernie Sanders. And Bernie went with you and you had a fantastic meeting in a UAW hall, a whole hour talking to voters in Kenosha. You did have some Trump voters there that you talked to. And I wonder what the high points were for you. You know, I think in some ways, one of the, the, the most important moment to me was a moment where I went into the crowd and talked to a young woman in hijab who is a, her name is Rima Ahmed, and she's a organizer. She's from Milwaukee. She's from the Midwest, and she's Muslim American. And she talked about basically feeling that the election of Trump was an existential threat to her community and the people she loved. And, um, and also that, 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 that fundamentally it was an election built on hate, you know, um, and to have the response from there's four Trump voters sitting on stage and three of them basically said with this kind of look of kind of, I thought genuine empathy and, and, and some horror, like, of course, you know, we would never let anything bad happen to you. The, the Congress, the Supreme court, they wouldn't let there be a Muslim ban or internment camps or anything like that. That's crazy. And her just being like, well, I don't really have that luxury <laughs> to interpret it that way. And then after a little bit of pause, one woman saying, you know, and, and she was saying this, I think, more broadly about immigrants. She said, I hope he does get rid of a lot of these illegals and kind of went on a, you know, a, a talk about that. And, and to me, it was sort of this sort of perfect cocktail of like both like some kind of genuine decency and also indecency all kind of mixed together that I think is part of the cocktail that is, you know, the, the, the worldview of many Trump voters or, or the Trump voter as a sort of, you know, the huge category of tens of millions of people and some of whom you know, each of whom has have personal complicated stories and complicated political views, and some of whom are driven by, you know, really genuine bad bigotry, some of whom have tacit bigotry, some of whom are relatively unbigoted compared to other people perhaps in their lives and culture, and yet voted for someone who's expressly bigoted but kind of discount that. I think, you know, I thought it was a really key moment in sort of understanding how all those things operate together. In the new issue of The Nation, you say that school children a century from now will be celebrating Obama's birthday. What about next year? Yeah, I think next year. I mean, I think actually, I think depends on what happens relatively soon in terms of how celebrated he is. But my prediction would be, and I think this year we've learned making predictions is dangerous, is that he will be almost pretty quickly he'll be a celebrated figure, actually. And quite totemic, actually, in in American politics, in American pop culture, in American history, I think he'll be he'll be sort of beloved and cherished, actually, as an ex-president. Chris Hayes, he wrote the introduction to the nation's special issue assessing the Obama era. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. Maybe you heard the news. Trump's picks for his cabinet are a nightmare. What can the Democrats do about it? What should they do? For comment, we turn to Joan Walsh. We see her a lot on MSNBC, where she's a political analyst. She wrote the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. And she's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached her today in New York City. Hi, Joan. Hi, John. How are you? I'm good. Well, at my house, we've been debating who is Donald Trump's worst pick for his cabinet. <laughs> the person. That's a fun family game. The person 
who should presumably be the number one target of Democrats. I say it's his attorney general designate, the racist nightmare Jeff Sessions. But my wife says it's that maniac from Oklahoma picked to head the EPA, a climate change denier named Scott Pruitt. And the friends who came to dinner on Sunday said it was his ludicrous choice for secretary of state, the head of Exxon, somebody I'd never heard of named Rex Tillerson. But you have a different approach. Instead of focusing on stopping the worst one, what do you think we should do? I think that we should fight pretty much everyone. I mean, seriously, there are some worse than others. And I think I agree with you about Jeff Sessions. I just think in a country where we saw voter suppression make such a difference uh, in this past election, uh, we can't afford to lose any more voting rights. So, you know, sessions would be my priority, but it, but it's it's very difficult. And I think, you know, the notion that the Democrats have to, quit, quote, pick their battles, which, you know, if you Google that, you get like a million hits, you know, every smart pundit, including and also a few kind of smart Democrats are saying, well, of course, we can't oppose everything, you know, the president deserves to pick his cabinet. I mean, I, I think that those used to be the rules uh, in Washington to some extent, but you always opposed people who were completely unqualified. And virtually all the people that he's choosing are unqualified. So I think that this notion that, you know, while well, you and I and others can probably agree on Sessions as the worst, that doesn't mean he's the only. So who is uh, going to lead us in this battle? Is this something Obama can do? Is this something Nancy Pelosi can do? Well, you know, it's not on Obama or Nancy Pelosi because a lot of it's really up to the Senate. Now, Nancy Pelosi has spoken out uh, and she's she's criticized virtually all of his picks, which is great. She's a fighter. Uh, but this is really going to be on the, Sen- the Senate Democrats. And it's also going to be on advocacy groups. I mean, you know, it, it's very tough because we've been hit you know, with an unimaginable tragic loss and a lot of groups who were gearing up to propose nominees and to propose uh, agency staffers. And I don't mean that in a kind of a spoil system way, but really progressive organizations that thought they were going to play a role in the next administration are having to instead, you know, throw out those lists uh, and make new lists and regroup. And then we've also got the holidays coming. So, you know, I don't necessarily want to criticize anyone at this point, although I will say uh, I'm, I'm a little bit alarmed at, at the lack of, of coordination. You know, the Democrats are in a very tough position. They don't have the White House, obviously. Therefore, they don't have a Democratic National Committee chair. I mean, Donna Brazile, I guess, is still nominally doing it. Um, but there's no, in terms of like a central messaging Place. I mean, not that Democrats are ever very good at that, but it, it's really hard to know what are the institutions. Uh, labor's been decimated. Labor has to, let's talk about our new, our, you know, labor secretary nominee. How did we leave him out? You know, who the fast food mogul who wants to do away with jobs and, and have robots replace workers because they never ask for a day off and they're never rude. I mean, you know, our, our treasury secretary, Steve Mnuchin, who, you know, is a Goldman Sachs hedge fund guy. I mean, we can go on and on and on. But to get back to, to your question, Question. I think that there are lots of advocacy. I know. I know how to say that word. Uh, groups that are that are trying to change gears and and you know will suit up in in late January. But 
right for now, what I'm trying to do is, is get out the notion that this, everybody's got to be so smart and so strategic and just pick one or two. I don't agree with that. When you've got people who, who basically are Rick Perry running the energy department that he wanted to get rid of. He couldn't even remember. He couldn't even remember. He couldn't even remember. He's not going to remember to go to work. You know, (laughs) these are ludicrous picks. They're not just conservative. You know, they're they're not just, oh, well, we lost, but they're entitled to put in these qualified conservatives who we disagree with. Many of them are incompetent. Others are evil. You know, when, when Dick Cheney says Rex Tillerson is a great pick for secretary of state, Democrats better get on board to oppose it. And luckily, in the case of Tillerson, I think they're going to have some company from Republicans, possibly for the wrong reasons. But, you know, in a certain way, who cares? So that's one where I think they can get they can probably get Republican votes. And then his deputy is supposed to be John Bolton. And that's one where I think they can probably get some Republican vote. So I'm not predicting that these are, are going to be people who are easy to knock off because even they won't be. Uh, you always have to worry about the defections from nominal alleged Democrats like Senator Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, who are always kind of drifting over the line and are even interviewing for cabinet positions themselves. So it's a tough, tough, tough battle. But the fact that Some Democrats are talking about only choosing one or two or being really strategic about who you oppose is kind of, to me, why why we lose. You say, rightly, this battle is in the Senate. The Democratic leader of the Senate is going to be Chuck Schumer. He has said he will fight Jeff Sessions' nomination for attorney general. The last I heard, he was not listing any of these other people. Have I missed something? You know, he's he's said he's expressed concern about about Tillerson. I haven't. And he might. I feel like there was one more last week that I was happy to see him come out and question. It might have been Puzder, the labor nominee. So I think Schumer is somebody who's inclined to make deals. Even Mitch McConnell has talked about how he's looking forward to dealing with Chuck because he's more amiable than Harry Reid, who I think we're going to really miss. Harry Reid is going out with guns blaring. So, but Schumer is susceptible to to pressure, and I, you know, I think he's a fairly liberal guy. Uh, I, you know, I think he wants to do the right thing, and I think if liberal, if Democratic base groups really mount opposition and make their case to the Senate, I think Schumer will have more of a spine if we don't, if we just continue lying around uh, on the couch, as I'm doing right this minute, um, (laughs) bemoaning our fate. But I'm talking to you, so I'm not just lying on the couch, watching MSNBC. (laughs) You're doing your job. I am doing my job from my couch. I'm lucky lucky to be able to work at home. Um, and now my daughter has moved back and she's living in my office. So, you know, I don't even, I don't have an office anymore. But anyway, so yeah, work, sitting on the couch is my job now, but uh, my new office. But yeah, I think a lot of us are in grief, are in shock, are in fear, like literal fear. Um, but I think we've got to got to begin to channel our energies. And and sure, individual people are going to care more. We we haven't mentioned Tom Price, the anti-contraception, anti-universal health care person who was who's our new who's our our health and human services nominee. People, women's groups are are going to organize uh, intensely to block him. They again. They may have an uphill battle. They may not win, but it's really important to begin fighting and to some extent begin fighting the way Republicans fight. And again, not merely to be partisan, but because these people are terrible. 
Tom Price, who you mentioned, uh, Trump's Health and Human Services nominee, I believe, wants to privatize Medicare. That should arouse. Some he opposition. also wants to pri- privatize Medicare, so that'll be that'll be news to uh, that a lot of uh, Trump voters should be uh, wa- you know wanting to hear, and 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 we should just be publicizing all of this as much as we can, um, uh, even even across the aisle, to, even to voters that we 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 lost out on. In November, so I think that there, I think that this will be, these will be fights that w- that will rally people, and I think that we'll really see the best, or and perhaps the worst of our leaders in Congress around how how combative they decide to be. One big question: How this actually works under the Senate rules? I don't want to get too much into the weeds here, and God knows the Senate rules are the weeds. But isn't is it not true that the Senate cannot filibuster cabinet nominees? That it's a majority rules vote for uh, yes. cabinet nominees. So what does that what does it mean then to fight a nominee for the cabinet? Fighting and winning are two different things, right? Yeah. To win, which we would like to win, we don't just want to fight for the sake. Well, I, I, let me correct myself. We do want to fight for the sake of fighting when these people are so bad. But they're two different things. To win, you've got to you've got to win over three uh, Republicans, three or four Republicans, and and hold all the Democrats. So it's hard, but it's not impossible. Democrats don't have 40 senators; they have 48. So you could certainly you can win some of these battles. I'm not predicting what which they'll be, and it's possible that Republicans will just Mitch McConnell will find a formula to keep them all hanging together. But it's also very possible to exploit splits within the Republican Party, of which there are many. They got paper papered over pretty quickly, but I think they're going to get back to fighting with each other again. And I think Democrats should be strategic about that. And then in terms of people that I don't want to say who's impossible to beat, but, you know, maybe Tom Price is hard to beat. Look, Jeff Sessions is hard to beat because he's a senator and and, uh, like somebody like Senator Jeff Flake, who didn't endorse Trump, who's up for who was up for re-election in 2018 in a purple state, Arizona, he came out on day one and said he would support Sessions. He would, he would have been someone, if you and I had had the conversation that day, where I would have said, let's look at uh, Jeff Flake. Let's, he's somebody that should, should be open to uh, opposing a guy who's so terrible on voting rights. I mean, Arizona was one of the non-Southern states that was covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the one that was gutted by Congress. It was, it, you know, it needed preclearance because it was so, it did so many dastardly things in terms of disenfranchising uh, Mexican-Americans. So Arizona is a place where people should care about and oppose sessions. Flake should be one of them. And, you know, when he lets you down, you, you know, that's going to be a very tough battle. But we have to fight it anyway. Well, although there's not a filibuster, there are hearings, and Democrats, although they're minority, they are represented on the committees that will be holding hearings. Isn't that the key arena right now? Yes, because the hearings will be covered, and Democrats, they've got great staffs. Uh, they can work with advocacy groups, and they can do their best to get the truth out about these nominees, even in cases where they don't have necessarily have the votes. But exposing the truth about Tom Price and his plans for Medicare and making him answer tough questions about all of that. Um, you know, he once claimed that he there was no woman in America who needed who, who couldn't afford contraception, who needed the Affordable Care Act's contraception mandate. Uh, you know, he's got a lot of things that he's said in his past that are going to be very 
very interesting to present in front of uh, television cameras and in front of the national media. Jeff Sessions, let's remember, Jeff Sessions was rejected by a majority Republican Senate in 1986 when Ronald Reagan uh, nominated him for a federal judgeship. He was too racist in 1986 to be to be put on the federal bench. He was rejected by Republicans, by a Republican Senate. So bringing out the old Jeff Sessions stories as well as the new Jeff, Jeff Sessions stories should be an important focus uh, should be an important focus of, of Democrats on, uh, on these committees. They have seats on these committees. It's very close. They have lots of voices. And we have new senators. Maybe, maybe we're going to learn a lot more about Kamala Harris's spine and, or Catherine Cortez Masto. People, should be look, people who want a future should be really looking to show how they're bringing new energy and new intelligence to the Senate. I, I think it, it can be a very energizing time for Democrats. I really do. Joan Walsh, read her at thenation.com. Thank you, Joan. Thanks, John. The Nation is assessing the Obama era with a special issue published this week, and it features, among others, Andrew Basevich on Obama's education in foreign policy. Basevich is a retired professor of history and international relations at Boston University. He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy, and he served for 23 years as a commissioned officer in the United States Army. He received his Ph.D. in American diplomatic history from Princeton, and he's also taught at West Point and at Johns Hopkins. His three recent books, Breach of Trust, Washington Rules, and The Limits of Power, all hit the New York Times bestseller list, and his most recent book, America's War for the Greater Middle East has been longlisted for the National Book Award. He publishes often in The Nation and Tom Dispatch, and also in the LA Times and other places. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Well, when Obama ran for president the first time in 2008, he said he would end the war in Iraq because it was the wrong war, and he would win the war in Afghanistan, which he said was the right war, a war against our enemies. How did that work out? Well, he achieved uh, neither purpose. I mean, he, he certainly attempted to bring the Iraq war to what he called a responsible conclusion, and he thought he had achieved that in December of 2011 when the last U.S. forces withdrew. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that soon thereafter, uh, the war in Iraq erupted once again, uh, this time with uh, ISIS as the as the proximate uh, adversary, uh, and we've been drawn back into the Iraq War. So he inherited the Iraq War, and he will bequeath it to President Trump. With regard to Afghanistan, he never even ended it. Uh, he his attempt to win the Afghanistan War, which occurred in uh, 2010, uh, was to engineer uh, uh, an Afghanistan surge. Uh, that was a counterpart of the Bush-Petraeus-Iraq surge. What that meant was that he appointed a new commander, Stanley McChrystal. McChrystal came armed with uh, ideas of implementing a counterinsurgency approach to Afghanistan. Obama provided an additional complement of U.S. forces. Uh, But the fact of the matter is that that recipe didn't yield anything like success. So there, too, Obama's going to leave office, and Trump is going to inherit what has long since become the longest war in U.S. history. 
Early in Obama's first term, in, in June of 2009, Obama went to Cairo and called for, quote, a new beginning between the U.S. and Muslims around the world, close quote. What has he achieved over the eight years in the Islamic world? Well, I would say not much. I think that the prospects of a new beginning uh, relied on bringing our misguided military adventures to an end, and he hasn't been able to do that. I think the, the caveat I would attach to that judgment, however, uh, relates specifically to U.S. relations with Iran. And there, uh, as he leaves office, there is at least the prospect of a new beginning in U.S.-Iranian relations, and that prospect is key to the Iran nuclear deal that uh, that he and Secretary Kerry uh, negotiated. And I must say, in my judgment, that, that that really is perhaps the, at least one of the most significant achievements of the Obama uh, presidency. Uh, we don't know exactly what that, that, that course change is going to yield, uh, but I think there's at least some possibility that the yield could be significant and could be positive. Much will depend on what the Trump administration does with the opening with Iran that Obama has been able to uh, negotiate. Obama won the Nobel Peace Prize again early in his first term. You write in The Nation that Obama, quote, has shown no aversion to violence short of invade and occupy. Uh, please explain. Well, I do think that uh, you know President Obama is, a, is, is indeed a very smart man, and I, there's no irony in that statement. And one of the things that he learned from his predecessor, George W. Bush, uh, is that invading and occupying countries with any expectations that you're going to be able to uh, quickly transform them is just, a, a, frankly, a dumb idea. Uh, so apart from his surge in Afghanistan, which didn't work, Obama has been very careful uh, with regard to committing large numbers of U.S. ground forces. I think he appreciates that, that a large-scale, on-the-ground U.S. military presence in the greater Middle East tends to have adverse consequences. That said, he has by no means uh, shown an aversion to using force. He has simply relied on, on other, other pri uh, used other priorities. He's relied on, on airstrikes, on special operations forces, and drone strikes, but he has intervened in any number of countries, most prominently, I think, uh, uh, Libya. We've learned recently that Russia hacked the presidential campaigns of both candidates and, and worked to make Trump president. Isn't cybersecurity a huge issue for the United States? And, and does the hacking of the uh, campaigns mean that Obama has failed there? Well, I mean, I have to say, in, in my own hierarchy of, of national security threats, uh, my top two would be climate change and, and cyber. It seems to me that when we, when we, when we look at the, the Russian uh, intrusion uh, into our politics, that's really a very, very small example of what, what we're facing. Uh, and, and, and we should emphasize that it's not simply that the United States is an innocent party. We ourselves, in conjunction with the Israelis, launched the first major cyber offensive, at least that I know of, uh, when we collaborated in attacking 
the Iranian nuclear facilities uh, under under code name Operation Olympic Games. So, so we are we are we are in a new era uh, in which the cyber threat is real, and it's I think it's likely to to grow. One of the reasons that I think we need to rethink our involvement in the greater Middle East with the wars that we that are never ending there is that to the extent that we're pouring money and attention and resources into fighting wars in places like Syria, I think that the, the, one of the effects is to uh, underinvest in problems that are much more important. Uh, and cyber is one, and climate change is another one. Well, let's talk about climate. You said it's one of your top two national security issues. What's the national security element of, of uh, climate change? Well, that, I mean, our, in a very fundamental sense, let's frame the issue narrowly, that it's just as if we're just concerned about, about the well-being of the American people. But in a very fundamental sense, our well-being, our prosperity, the, the, the stability of our political system is in some senses dependent upon the condition of the planet. And, and to the extent that climate change puts that condition at risk, then that's a really, really big deal. And I think it's hard for people to grasp that because the threat is emerging in human terms relatively slowly. I mean, I'm talking to you in, from Massachusetts, it's December in Massachusetts, and guess what? It's pretty cold here. Uh, so one, one would look outdoors and say, hey, climate change, what, what, what's the problem? But we know that scientifically, uh, that even if the changes may be incremental, they are exceedingly uh, significant, uh, and that we're on the bow wave of, of, of change. And, I mean, I give President Obama credit for appreciating the significance of this emerging threat, Sad to say, the incoming administration seems not to share that view. Another of uh, Obama's most significant foreign policy initiatives was what he called his pivot towards Asia. Uh, Trump, of course, has a very different relationship to China. Where do we stand at this moment on the pivot to Asia? Well, uh, shrouded in ambiguity, uh, I would say. I mean, uh, it seems to me that Obama's basic instinct uh, which was that in the 21st century, the Asia-Pacific is going to matter a whole lot. It's going to matter a whole lot in terms of uh, our economy. It's going to matter a whole lot uh, in terms of whether or not we're able to avoid the reemergence of, of great power uh, wars. Uh, so he's right on there. But the pivot itself has produced uh, ambiguous results uh, at best. I mean, if, if the core question, maybe it's not the only question, but I think the core question is, will the United States and China in the 21st century find it possible to, to share the planet, to mutually coexist? Or are the United States and China headed down a path that will inevitably lead to uh, armed conflict? That's the core question. And it's very difficult to say that we have a, a definitive answer to that question. And I think one of the reasons it's so difficult is because it's very difficult for us to, to know what China aspires to uh, as a great power. To what degree are they uh, on, a, on a course of, of expansionism? 
uh, or to what degree are the actions that we observe simply a desire on their part to assert the status and claim the respect that is due to a great power? I don't claim to have the answer to that question. Uh, and, and I think until we can answer that question, then it, it'll become difficult uh, to, uh, to frame this pivot uh, in ways that we know will be prudent and, and successful. Last question. Donald Trump has nominated for Secretary of Defense a retired Marine Corps General, James N. Mattis. Trump calls him Mad Dog Mattis. What do you think of him? Well, Mattis is clearly very, uh, very uh, well thought of in military circles. But I mean, I'd, I'd expand the question a little bit. It's not just that we've got a general at defense. We've got a three-star general at the National Security Council uh, as a national security advisor. We've got a four-star general uh, who's at Homeland Security. Uh, it's starting to come pretty, pretty close to being a junta instead of an administration. And I guess my key point would be that the, the principle of civilian control, the idea that the senior-most uh, positions in our national security apparatus ought to be filled by civilians, that's a principle that ought not to be lightly discarded. Uh, and sad to say, it's a principle that Donald Trump seems to be oblivious to. And frankly, even if I think uh, Mattis is probably competent uh, to fill his position, it's pretty clear that Lieutenant General Flynn Trump's nominee to be the national security advisor is an out-and-out Islamophobe uh, and something of a nutcase. So Mattis may be okay. Flynn, I think, hardly objectionable. But Flynn's filling a job that doesn't even require Senate confirmation. Uh, so we're going to be stuck with him. Andrew Basevich, he wrote about Obama's education in statecraft for the special issue of The Nation magazine on the Obama era. You can read it at thenation.com. Mr. Basevich, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you very much. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano, with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.